Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Purpose Made Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring the fundamental topics and key drivers for change within our global society today. This series is brought to you by Peter Bell, founder of Purpose Made, a strategic consultancy specializing in post-pandemic change and organizational transformation. Don't forget to click subscribe to hear all the latest news and views on our changed global society. What's happened in the last 15 years is digital has kind of like bent and twisted all those social issues. It's it's kind of um, disrupted them. And I hate using the word disruption in, in, in relation to technology, but it's disrupted what we thought we knew. And now you're faced with a series of contemporary social issues. Original conversations, purpose made for you. So sit back, relax, and we do hope you enjoy. Hi, so today I'm really excited to be joined by the wonderful Chris Ashworth. Chris is the head of social impact at Nominate. And during this episode, we chat about the challenges and opportunities born out of digitalization to the work of Nominate and Chris's own motivation and experiences, which are driving him to do the amazing work he does today. As Chris shares with me to share to you, our listeners, experiences such as a heartbreaking account of South Africa, which underpins his deep-rooted desire to help others. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, and we do hope you enjoy. Yeah, let's just dive into it, I guess. So the first question is, I wanted to understand is, tell me a little bit about you and your background. Is When I was looking into your experience, I noticed, noticed we're both former Oxfam. I'm intrigued as to what the key lessons, elements and social problems and societal problems, which I guess with the benefit of hindsight are driving your beliefs and motivations around the work that you, you do today. Yeah, yeah, um, sure. I suppose I was asked this question recently. We had a few new starters in the social impact team. And one of the things I've always tried to do is keep it quite simple, my kind of philosophy. And so it sounds really, really, really simple, but it's to help. And and the backstory to that was probably in 2006. So I was working at an orphanage in South Africa and I was busy doing kind of like labouring duties. I was helping build a small family home for where uh, children who'd been who had lost their um, parents to HIV. So it was right in the middle of the kind of HIV pandemic. And I was busy and around doing kind of like building a kitchen and work, working with a couple of local labourers to help get like things sorted in the house. Thinking I was doing a good thing, you know, being useful. And at the end of the day, we just finished building this little apartment for uh, a house mother to take on four children. And a car pulled up. I was in, right in the middle of a place called Valley of a Thousand Hills in Durban. And a guy got out of the car and he opened the back of the car, the car door, and a woman stepped out with two children, one a baby in her arms and another toddler. And I sort of stood to the side and sort of whispered to, to a chap I was working with. And I was, I was saying, what's, what's happening? And the guy said, oh, she's, she's bringing her children to, to stay. And and I hadn't sort of really appreciated. I was sort of busily getting on with, you know, just jobs that this woman was saying goodbye to her children at that moment. She had a bottle in her hand that had 
what looked like dirty water in it. And so you stand back and you're trying to absorb in the moment what's going on. And she was dying of AIDS. And I remember looking at her and, and exchanging a couple of brief sentences, but the, the hope had extinguished from her eyes. And she was handing, you know, two children over before she was driven away. And I suppose over the years, for me, there's been a few moments like that. You know, my experiences with Oxfam out in the field in different parts of, of Central Africa, where you see an individual who feels hopeless or that hope is starting to extinguish. And that just creates, I think it would do in anybody, but just creates a compulsion in you to try and address some of the challenges that they might face. I'm not a morbid person. I'm, you know, full of energy to kind of like help solve the world's problems where I can. But I think through my experiences of the last 15 years, I've seen a few moments where if you can do something to stop that hope extinguishing, then you have to. And so that's that's really where it began. That was the first moment where, you know, your life changes and you decide to pledge yourself to doing something about it. It's about giving hope to people that feel hopeless, isn't it, during these times? And it's, you know, it's interesting. Like I spent a bit of time in South Africa myself, but yeah, kind of doing some volunteering on a wildlife game reserve, which was interesting. But um, I do have friends that I met out there that worked in orphanages and and, and saw and had to deal with the things that you you saw. And the same same applied to them. Like they left that situation with open eyes to what, some of the challenges that we face within society that some of us through, I guess, like look really an upbringing and that yeah. we, we've been able to kind of almost be, be numb to it. But the, the fact is like drawing back to Oxfam, they released a great report just the other week um, called Inequality Kills. And like yeah. that, that report is just astounding because if you read it and then you look into the work and the challenges that we face as a society as a whole, we are, more unequal than we've ever been. There's, there's more divide from a wealth to whatever it may be. Like, yeah. it's just insane. And, you know, like, it's really it's great to chat to people that have a similar desire and under, underlying motivations to change the system to allow for some of these um, problems that we, we know about, we've, we've known about for a long period of time yeah. um, to be addressed. And and that's what it's about. I think um, you know that draws me nicely into the work that you you do with within um, your new role and at Nominate is like the work that you're doing is there's a much more of a higher purpose to why you're doing it. And so maybe if you could talk to us specifically about you know things like the social impact program or the public yeah, yeah. benefit strategy and and you know highlight to our listeners you know some of the long-standing challenges that are driving the need to change and how technology yeah. as a whole is playing a pivotal role. Well, I suppose, yeah, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. I suppose the first thing to say is having spent over a decade at Oxfam, my, my blood will always probably run green to, to work for an organisation that is fighting inequality and knowing how complex it is. I, I started life there, you know, with people like Kate Rayworth of Donut Economics fame now, I suppose, yeah. um, and, and Duncan Green, Poverty to Power, and lots and lots of other people who are so influential. But I think that at the at the core was that was that challenge of when you walk away from some you know from a from a volunteer program, lots of people brilliantly get involved in all of that, and then you go where where do you apply your skills or attributes to something, and at what level? I think is also the most important one. I could have probably still been building kitchens in. South Africa if I thought that that was the best use of my time but it, it it comes home when you when you arrive in somewhere like Oxfam to then ask yourself the question of just how unequal is the world what are the structural barriers where are you going to spend your time and effort and I remember a really really interesting conversation with with one of the with the make trade fair campaigners probably back in 2007 who said that if you change one rule in the trade system at, at a government level, it can instantly lift 128 million people out of poverty. 
And I think that brought home the power of campaigning, of influencing and lobbying um, and activism and going, where where does change really happen? And if you're going to spend your time doing and working on making change happen, then do you do it at an individual level? Do you do it at a community level? Do you do it on a national or global level? And for everybody, I think, you know, there's a legitimate place for everybody to go, where can I, where can I be of most use and apply my skills? But it was, it was there that I started to question the role of technology. So it was in a place like Oxfam, a global NGO, they have a, have a model, you know, as you know, around development, campaigning and humanitarian. And the campaigning bit is there to really kind of like change and challenge those rules that are in place that are creating that inequality. And I suppose when you step back from it, it's to make sure that a rule gets changed or an intervention happens that can lift millions of people out of poverty or make the world fairer for hundreds of thousands of people in one foul swoop, like the control arms campaign. But that model that Oxfam has has been built over generations and generations since World War II when it started. And then we started to see the impact of, I suppose, the digital revolution start to kick in in the last 15 years. And I started to wonder whether technology had a similar principle or similar goal to that of campaigning, which is, you know, can one intervention change people's lives for better or worse, as opposed to, you know, the hundreds of years you have to put into development work to make a change happen at a national or global scale. And it was, it was I suppose, at the same time as things like Facebook were taking off. I remember driving around Kenya looking at um, blue pumps that we were installing in, in really arid areas, in really small communities. And everywhere you went, through every village, and this was, as you can probably imagine, in a four by four over hundreds of kilometres of track, we kept seeing adverts for Orange and France Telecom everywhere these huge billboards in every small village. And you're like, Christ, we're, we're trying to get water into these places. We're trying to install like water pumps and in, with boreholes. We're still installing latrines um, and latrine slabs in refugee camps just across the border. But somehow Vodafone and Orange at the time have got huge billboards and everybody we see is starting to use mobile phones. Like technology is having a massive, profound impact already in this community here. And so I remember writing a paper back at Oxfam trying to, trying to tease out whether Oxfam could um, evolve its programs to appreciate and understand, you know, maybe intellectualize the role of technology on its, on it, on its work. And like in any big institution, you're going to meet some resistance to that. You're going to meet people who embrace it. And they're going to explain that right across the NGO community, they've got to emerge into this field that's to do with technology. And I'm just in too much of a rush, I suppose. I suppose I, you know, naively was talking to people going, but we should do this, we should do that. We need to look at data collection. We need to look at the role of digital technology. How can we use it from, a, from an education point of view in all our programmes? Let's do it now. And of course, that's really naive. But there was still this fascination that, you know, I'm no expert in campaigning activism and how you make change happen in that way. But I can see that technology already is having a really profound impact on and, it, and it's disrupting how we do development work already. Now, whether we're in charge of that and leading it or if we're reacting to it, it's having a big, profound impact now. You know, whether that is mobile phones or access to education or the collection of data, digital IDs, all these things are going to start really, really changing the nature and shape of how NGOs respond to challenges in the 21st century. We've got, it's got to be part of our understanding and appreciation. That was a long answer, so that's when no, it's, it's, it's really, a, that's, that's a good answer. Because at the end of the day, like for for me personally, in respect to technology, I'm I'm by far means a Luddite, but you've got to acknowledge like the disconnect of our connected generation and um also with within that there's there's the underlying elements of technology that also has negative effects in respect to like addiction and 
Absolutely. Like techno, the way the way I mean, having having worked in kind of like, I suppose, the question of what role is technology played on people's lives? That's ultimately what we obsess around now. And 10 years ago, it was or even 15 years ago, maybe it was peripheral or our view of it was peripheral. And now it dominates almost all conversations. And in fact, is even you know, the means by which we're having those conversations. So the current work the current work is based on the belief that technology can profoundly improve somebody's life. Yeah. And it can it can take someone who would otherwise be vulnerable or disadvantaged and propel the opportunities and access to opportunities that that, that person has. That's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, technology can entrench inequality it can make it worse technology is neutral there's a there's a there's an amazing community in the uk the tech for good community and one of the things that i love about that community is they really question the the brand name that they've given that community called tech for good because tech could be good could be bad it's kind of it is everything in terms of how it impacts so many people's lives and so that's why that's where the current you know when I look at the strategy that we've got in place with Nominate and we look at all the different, we, we concentrate on five social issues and they go from one extreme, which is digital access and inclusion. How can we, how can we address um, digital inequality where young people in particular don't have access to a device and connectivity, let's say. And then on the other, on the other extreme, we're working on internet safety and countering harm, which is how can we protect young people to live and thrive with a life online they're almost contradictory because we're trying to give people access but when we've given when we've found a way to give people access we're then saying it's it's quite a wild west out there so how can we build your digital resilience once you're there yeah i think it's as as technology evolves it evolves actually quicker than the way that the economy evolves and the way that um the systems that we set up and utilize to use and work within our daily lives um, evolve so we, we the way that we kind of have to look at technology is as long as we make sure that this like the utilization of technology and the new and the amazing new realities it's creating as long as it's always a human centered peer to peer viewpoint then there's there's a lot of benefit to gain because you know diving into it a little bit more detail like looking at the specifics of the pandemic like um, de- device redistribution is is key because you know we saw like I don't know what the stat was, but there was loads of people within the UK alone that didn't have access to devices. So when it when when the schools were closed, that immediately created a an injustice or um, inequality yeah. in respect to their education. So, you know, to, what what specifically are you, are you guys doing in respect to that device re- the, the whole like challenge between yeah. device redistribution versus a local community digital inclusion model? Yeah, yeah. So pre pandemic there was digital exclusion, but it was kind of masked and mirrored because people weren't being told to hibernate from uh, a virus. In the first few months of the pandemic, I suppose crisis response kicked in. So I very much channeled a lot of my Oxfam emergency response experience to go, there are people who are locked in lockdown who were clinically vulnerable they're isolating. The only time they need to leave the house, they will have to leave the house, is if they need to go to the GP surgery, the pharmacy, or for provisions. And those three places are where they're most likely to contract COVID. So if they're not online and people aren't able to access those services, you know, a video consultation with the GP, picking up their pharmacies or having them delivered by subscribing online, then we're forcing people into the very, very petri dishes where they're likely to track COVID. So a lot of the first few months were about helping people who were already digital excluded, primarily older people, so that if they were locked down, they weren't locked out. And that dominated the first few months. And then we tried to predict, and I'll come on in a little while to talk about kind of like how you try and predict some of these things, what's going to happen with schools. So after you've dealt with crisis and you've kind of you're in response mode, you're then dealing with okay. Now we've got inequality as an issue. 
the, one of the facts that stuck with me through the pandemic was that 98% of UK school children who were who were privately educated had access to a device and connectivity to continue their education. At the other end of the spectrum, two in five young people uh, who were on free school meals didn't have access to a device and connectivity. So you're already seeing a massive gap in terms of losing out on six months of education. There were there were young people who were trying to, with their parents, get into school to get printed materials to then take them home to then take them back in complete. Or there were people who just completely missed out on education during that period altogether. So we kind of boiled that down to kind of like, okay, digital inequality during the pandemic, it's about devices. So device poverty. Do you have a useful and adequate device um, to enable you to do your schoolwork? But then do you have the data? Can you connect to Wi-Fi in the home? If not, can you access mobile data? Both, you know, mobile data is perishable. So some people will have it at a certain time of the week and then they won't. Particularly if you're from a poorer household, you're more likely to be on pay-as-you-go. You know, there are 25 million pay-as-you-go deals out there. So they're a lot more common than people appreciate. Do you have the skills to be able to do it, particularly if other people in your family don't have the skills because they've not got basic digital skills or essential digital skills themselves? Do you have the support? from the school, from your parents, from your peers, to be able to then complete some of that education online. And I think the one that we talked about least during the pandemic was, do you have the right environment? Some people simply didn't have a place where they could do their homework, where it was quiet. Or they might be sharing a bedroom with three siblings, and it's not possible. So we heard a lot of stories, I think, in the latter part of 2020, that started to say, hang on a minute, there's a digital inequality being magnified by the pandemic. It was there before, but now it's really biting. And it was at that point, there was some frustration on my part started to kick in, which was there was at least a million young people who didn't have an adequate device at that point in the pandemic. In terms of philanthropic funding from you know big corporates or elsewhere, there, there wasn't the money, the means to go out and purchase laptops and devices so that young people could carry on their education in isolation. And even if there was the money, there simply wasn't the supply. So I remember some people who were working on one of the emergency campaigns checking stock levels in China and Rotterdam to see if there were physically enough laptops literally in the world to supply European school children with enough devices to carry on their education. Like, you know, there was Italy have got in there first. They purchased 70,000 Lenovo's was kind of the situation. And, and again, channeling a bit of Oxfam, the thing that I found most frustrating is that there are about 40 million devices in people's homes and in companies' storerooms, whether that's an SME or a large multinational if supply can't meet demand for new devices, then why aren't we looking to reuse and rehome what's already out there? So when you look around the house, the most expensive piece of kit in your house is the is the laptop. Yeah. And it's probably the one thing that you can't readily and easily donate to a charity shop. For loads of reasons as well, for loads of legitimate reasons. Oh God, what, what do I do with all my old photos? What if someone hacks my account? Um, how do I transfer stuff over? You know, all, all legitimate reasons, but they're all reasons that we've built ourselves. This is a, you know, we're used to donating old clothes to a charity shop. We're used to donating crockery and cookware. We haven't, in a, in a strange turn of events, that the one thing that has probably most value to another person at that time, we can't donate because we haven't worked out the system of how to do it. Yeah, it's about... It's like, I know that you kind of progress on about, you know, like the whole resetting of things, because like taking my experience from big corps, like the, the companies that I've worked for, like EA, Nestle, they all face the same issue. Like they have a lot of technology, right? But yeah. um, what happens with when they kind of go through a 
process of buying new assets. They've got all the old assets. They just go through a period of writing off. So you've got them being written off and destroyed by some company elsewhere that, you know, these could be kind of reused, reset and rehomed to people in need. And then you also look at like the bigger, bigger, bigger cops in respect to like Amazon that, you know, because of the way that their their supply chain is modeled, that they, they're actually destroying what is brand new equipment already because they, they don't need it, which is crazy. Is but. There's an, there's an, there's an irony. It's kind of like, I don't like, there's a, we've, we've basically inherited a current situation that basically we've inherited a norm. Everybody's accepted that devices reach the end of their life and then we purchase a new one, but we've created that ecosystem. We've not really sort of stepped back and gone, that's kind of, weird and wrong yeah. so i'm you know set, setting up the so we, we developed a platform called reboot which was basically saying it's possible to do this if you tell us a bit of a few details if you're a school or a community group or an organization and i've had hundreds of conversations with organizations through the pandemic saying we've got 50 laptops but we don't know what to do with them and then another conversation would be with a university going we've got loads of students who basically their education has just stopped or schools saying the same thing. What do we do? And everybody was hitting these same kind of brick walls. And then a few people were getting through that brick wall, like power to connect in Wandsworth, who were going, no, we can do this. There's a really simple way to erase the data. There's a really simple way to stick the Chrome operating system on an old laptop. And there's a really safe way to distribute those devices to people who need it. And we can plug in a bit of data as well, or we can do Wi-Fi community Wi-Fi in that area. So, Slowly but surely, we saw it was possible. So we made a a platform that basically said, if you want to explore doing this yourself, here's a step-by-step guide. You'll have to work hard to make the campaign work in your local area. You'll have to appeal for devices. You'll have to have a few people with some IT skills who can wipe the devices, but we promise you it's really easy. And here's a 60-page user manual to tell you how to do it. And here's here's what we know works. So we put that out and um, it ha- it's had 18,000 community groups and schools visit the platform. And we hope that quite a lot of organizations are still using that to get, you know, these very expensive pieces of kit into the hands of people who will benefit from it. I guess it's, it's about looking at the, you know, everybody talks about supply chains, but it's about re- re-changing and it's about, like reforming and reimagining what is a supply chain to to a value chain and looking towards how with it you know if you're going to talk about like economies like how within a circular economy that you can utilize um, an asset that you've you've purchased and you you may be looking to sell or you may be in, internal to a corp and it it reaches what you believe is the end of its it, its shelf life date but you've still got an opportunity to kind of work with people like yourselves and because the issue is not going to go away just like as a pandemic's kind of subsides it's it's still there like these are known issues so yeah. it's about the partnerships that can be created and and like you know you talked about the locked in and to, and locked out like that's so true like people during the pandemic were in their homes and through periods of lockdown but because of that like their education came to a pause because they were locked out of technology and yeah. you know there's there's kind of an overarching movement to be made here like you you're, you're both from we're both from Oxfam so we love a bit of a movement going but yeah exactly. it's like the the way to utilize like social change and social movements to empower business um, and and people to you know kind of crystallize a belief to change a, a particular issue that's that's uh, that's problematic and you know like drive a change that we want to see going forward and it, that's that's why the power yeah, of exactly. movement's always good I think it's that that thing of I know when we set up reboot, we knew it'd have an okay impact in terms of the BBC were doing the give a laptop appeal. A number of big organisations said we've got six thousand or seven thousand laptops that we could put back into the circular economy. We're like brilliant, that's great. So we can close a gap, but part of it was also nudging a bit of behaviour change. I don't know if you can use those sorts of phrases after the government in the pandemic, but. Just nudging people to reconsider, is this working for everybody? Is there a better way of doing things? Is there a fairer way of doing things? And I think, you know, schools are more slowly, you know, becoming more attuned to the fact that in terms of, in terms of the future of the digital economy in the UK, we need, to, we need to be 
supporting young people to be working, you know, digitally at a younger age yep. to complement the pen and paper. So there's an in- inevitability around digital skills and careers that young people are going to have to have strong digital skills. If, yeah. we're, if we're also addressing the digital access and inclusion issue at the same time, then we're moving things on a little bit further on both counts. Exactly, because you've got to, you know, like you, anybody that's got like even the most basic of knowledge of economics can look to this, what the UK is doing at the moment in respect to like bills going up 54%, like inflation up 7%, you know, like you look at the realities of Brexit in respect to the loss of trade and everything's pointing towards a, a recession. And if you kind of look towards that as like what is probably going to come, then you've got to kind of look towards like, how do we kind of, how do we protect our future generations? Because um, when I'm talking about protecting, I'm talking about what is going to be an evident youth unemployment crisis. How do we how do we support them in respect to the skills that they need for the digital economy, and also ensure that you know there's a pipeline of talent that's available to either new industries that have to be built from from um, where we need to go, or a pipeline built between corporates and education. Because you know, like we just have to look back to. Like remember the financial crash when that when that occurred. Like I, I just finished my masters and I, and I was I was lucky in respect to my first job out of uni that particular time because I'd worked beforehand. I went and worked in in Oxfam and that's that's how I came across like some of your colleagues and the great work yeah, yeah. That you guys are doing um, when when we were both there. But like I'm fully aware that um, there's a lot of challenges for people in respect to the coming months ahead. So, and it's, it's easy. Like it's, it's not, it's not hard. It's just a case of like creating positive partnerships between industry and people and like, people that desperately need support and you know by creating these like human-centered networks and and partnerships and you know, we can see a lot of positive change take, take place. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile. We like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I've been asked to, quite a lot about trying to, trying to distill what's What's going on in, ter- in terms of in terms of kind of this whole space between society and digital? I'm trying to distill that into a kind of like you know an approach, or what? Why why is it so confusing for people, or why is it difficult to address all these issues? And it's kind of like a lot of the issues that we work on now through the nominate social impact work are issues that have been around time immemorial because. Yeah. Fundamentally, they're about inequality, they're about social mobility, they're about uneven access to education. 
about difficult um, scenarios around harms and vulnerability. But what's kind of happened in the last 10 to 15 years, all of those issues have got a body of evidence behind them. You know, like ragged schools got set up in the 1860s, you know, to address inequality for kids who were living on the streets and not getting education. But what's happened in the last 15 years is digital has kind of like bent and twisted all those social issues. It's it's kind of um, disrupted them. And I hate using the word disruption in, in, in relation to technology, but it's disrupted what we thought we knew. And now you're faced with a series of contemporary social issues. Now, if you've been working on social mobility or tracking social mobility for and in its history in the UK for 150 years, there's a massive body of evidence. There's infrastructure and institutions. That's where, you know, universal comprehensive education came out from or the welfare state was built around health inequalities. And all of a sudden you've had this new form of um, technology come and uh, slam into it. And how we approach these issues, we're still an infant. So we don't understand them very well yet. We're still getting used to them. And so we're quite, you know, I've been naive in, in some of the programs and initiatives I've built over the years because we're still coming to terms with how is that playing out? What If I do X, what are the unintended consequences? Why? So if you just take internet safety, for example, people have been talking about keeping children safe online for the last 10 years, and that's absolutely true. But what's emerging now is the concept of digital resilience. Yeah. How do we make young people more resilient when they're online? So you're starting to see the approach to how we support people change just in that short period of time because we're learning because there's a bit more evidence around things but we're still a baby when it when it in, in terms of the life cycle of addressing a social issue social mobility like I say has been around 150 years as a concept digital inclusion has been around 15 years so we're we're trying to address social challenges but they're very very new I think and it's, it's not surprising that people will get those those calls wrong yeah, and they're bound to in like industry because technology. Again, I'm, I'm I'm by far means a luddite. Like I, I love technology. You look at the opportunities that we have ahead of us in respect to like the metaverse is is a, already a, a one trillion dollar industry. Um, like there's huge scope for opportunity and development. And like my time with within computer games, like you look at what they're doing now. Like the start of this year has been huge for mergers and acquisitions, and they've got some amazing plans within their roadmap. But yeah. it's about looking at things that you know everything has a consequence so if if we're able to think more holistically about um our impacts within the within the world and what we're trying to drive rather than be kind of this like what is seemingly the case most of the time at the moment is this like reactive nature to problem solving if you if you're able to be a bit more proactive and think holistically about the full impacts of things then you can see like real positive change take place because you're more kind of attuned to what the challenges that you may face so you know this draws me nicely into the work that you've you've done with charities in respect to Bernardo's as Prince's Trust Scouts in the National Safety Insight Centre like it's they they have challenges in respect to how they historically have engaged with people is changing. So, you know, that, that whole utilization of technology and how technology ultimately plays a pivotal role in their change process. That's, yeah. that's interesting as well. It's, it, it really is. I mean, I'm really, you know, we're really lucky, you know, we've got a social impact program. So, so the social impact program at Nominet, we're a funder. We work on these five, major social issues that all relate to each other but fundamentally we work through with and through partners who are ultimately you know that golden rule of what what is their expertise and that's trusted relationships and a deep understanding of working with young people so we're privileged to work with the likes of bernardo's and prince's trust and you know some some lesser known youth youth sector organizations catch 22 a place to be Chasing the Stigma and the Hub of Hope, STEM4. It's a real privilege to kind of see some organisations who were only created in this kind of digital age and who really thrive in it and get it. Organisations who were created and set up before it, so like the mix, they deal with 4 million 
uh, inquiries every year on children's mental health, on their relationships. They get no government funding, but they have a huge impact and reach into the lives of young people. So it is a real privilege to work with so many good organisations who are addressing these contemporary issues that have been shaken by technology. I think you hit upon a point there just a second ago, Peter, about are your programmes reacting or preventing harm or opportunities? So if you took digital skills and careers as one example, there's a massive irony at the moment. So the tech sector, as you probably know, has got a huge supply crisis, talent crisis, where there's probably 700,000 roles in the UK that haven't been filled. You can't scroll through LinkedIn at the moment without, you know, seeing lots of people go, we need a front-end developer, um, or we need this role filling. Does anybody know a UX person? And then the irony that you've then got 700,000 plus young people not in education, employment and training. So you're like, in a perfect world, these two issues should can cancel each other out. You've got a digital economy desperate for talent and a youth underemployment and unemployment crisis in the UK as well. And we're trying to, we've, we've got various initiatives that we're building on at the moment to trying to close that gap. How can we support young people, particularly those from a disadvantaged background, to have the motivation, the aspiration, the interest to embark on a career in the tech sector, in the digital economy. And that's difficult and complex. They're surrounded by people maybe who come from the analog generation like like me. They're surrounded by potentially people, it might be third generation of um, no work in the family. You've got people who live miles away from a tech sector or centre in the UK. Or if they do live near one, it's wall-to-wall people they don't understand or relate to because they're seen as too aspirational for them you've got the chance that they potentially rarely used or rarely have access to technology in the home or at school and then suddenly the tech sector is turning around and going would you like to be a software engineer (laughs) and it's kind of like what and what so we've got to find creative ways to close that gap at the moment we're reacting to a problem So the generation that are coming through now, we're trying to inspire and motivate them to get involved in the digital economy because it's it's great for the digital economy, but most importantly, it's good for a young person to potentially have a rewarding career and high earning potential and escape the situation that they might be in. But we're still reacting, whereas it's only now that I think, or in the last five to eight years, where people are going... Let's bring technology into schools. Let, let's help young people embrace or have really good early experiences with technology. Let's make sure that girls as well as boys really enjoy those early experiences of using and building and making things with technology in school. Let's inspire them with brilliant role models so that when they come in to move towards college or move towards their GCSE options or their even university options, they're still really excited about the potential it offers so yeah that's where working with schools to kind of prevent the problems that we've got now if we work with people when they're younger in the schools we're more likely to see positive progress in 10 years time and not have to face a crisis in the digital economy or address a crisis in youth underemployment yeah well you 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 said a few things that kind of resonated with me there. One one being the ability to inspire people because, you know, where we are at the moment, like the issues that we've just chatted about, they're very much stuff that industry, I believe, is going to have to um, solve because like at the crux of everything, even even the course of what's taken place over the past 20 or so months is, um, you know, the pandemic put trust to a test and without going into depth about like governments and bits and pieces, like we're all well aware. That would be of, a longer podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're all well aware of what's taken place, but like it, we, we equally, we know that they're not going to be the ones that are going to um, provide the solutions that, that, that we need. So for the ability to kind of inspire others you have to galvanize them towards a single movement and so towards a mission so if you're going to say to them that 
you know, th- these are the opportunities available to you, then it's about partnerships, about, it's about connecting with industry, con- not, just in, not just education, but industry as well, and to make sure that there's, there's a change and there's a, there's a shift to, to accountability above and beyond simply rhetoric. Because what, one thing that's interested me at the moment within industry is they kind of shift away from, remember the old like CSR stuff, and yeah. they've, they've now like shifted to like ESGs and the emergence of ES, ESGs. Like if companies and industry are going to start like um, using that as a, as a benchmark, I guess, for success and above and beyond simply profitability, then what has to take place is like rather than solely focusing on profit, you have to so you have to shift towards engaging with others and engaging yeah, yeah. with audiences. And it's like these problems that we talk about, they're really easy to fix, but it's about putting people together to make sure that they understand like the, the full roadmap, they understand the strategic journey that we need to make um, and the movement slowly but surely forward that allow for some of these things to be addressed. And I think that's that's where we are. I once I once wrote an article that got cancelled because it was too provocative. So this is a good opportunity to share its headline with you, see yeah. what you think of it. But it was a I was asked to write something on corporate philanthropy, and my opening line was corporate corporate philanthropy doesn't exist. And I did go on to kind of elaborate why I didn't believe corporate philanthropy existed, but I just think this publisher wasn't having any of it. It was too incendiary. <laughs> I think it's not the solution though, at the end of the day. Like, no. we, we do we do see that like philanthropic activities are taking place, but like just the I did a, a podcast a, a number of weeks ago with the patriotic millionaires and like just yeah. dig into the work that they're they're doing and like at the end of the day, overarchingly, what's the, the things that are driving inequality, the things that are driving the the higher substance abuse, the behaviours that is is ultimately like an ideology that isn't fit for purpose no more. So to change yeah. that, we need to like acknowledge that as a fact because the, the issues that we face ahead of us, yeah, they're challenging, but it doesn't mean they can't be solved. No, and I think that's the thing. The, the thing behind the corporate philanthropy thing was, was basically trying to say corporate philanthropy doesn't exist because a corporate isn't a human being. You know, benevolence can only happen from a human. Corporates are a collection of, you know, networks of individuals, of brands, of systems and processes it will it will move towards the things it needs to move towards within the rules sometimes that it's got so it was trying to say like if you look at the actions on following cop 26 on the green agenda or you look at the actions of organizations during the pandemic organizations did what they needed to do and had to do in order to survive or thrive themselves as networks so if that thing, if an organization needs permission to operate in a particular environment, then it will increase its environmental standards to do so, because that's what its consumer, that's what its customers or its shareholders will expect. If an organization or an entity needs to do to serve its community locally better, because that will give it license to operate by the local council or whatever it might be it will make those moves, but it will make a logical decision based on its best interests or enlightened self-interest. And it's kind of going, okay, that's okay. Take Unilever, for example. They've had a, for nearly 20 years now, had a really progressive approach to um, sustainability. But they've made a direct link between sustainability actions within the organization and their share price. They've had a very enlightened CEO and Paul Polman over, you know, not, not now, but their conscious decisions made to improve their share price. Marks and Spencers are the same, you know, a real kind of best in class approach to um, sustainability and, pl- you know, the plan A stuff. But it's because it made solid business sense to operate in that way. That's what its consumer base expected. Mm-hmm. That's what its shareholders expected of it. This this is why, like, um, if you look at, you know, like, I love economics, so like, I'm not going to dive too much into it, but I'll just say holistically a, a quick view that if you do look at um, economic models, like we have um, a one currently that was created by Milton Freeman that ultimately was designed solely to provide um, shareholder value and by at all costs. And he's, he's well, there's, there's a lot of um, clips that capture this particular, the nuance, but like within the purpose economy that I'm talking about, all stakeholders matter, everybody. And because of that, like we're seeing 
rather, governments are always slow and lethargic to react. So they'll come later on. Um, yes. And what will happen will change later. But what is happening with in- industry really interests me. So if you kind of look at like Larry Fink, which is the, you know, like I don't, he was the CEO at BlackRock and he, he had a stance back in late 2019 that he will only invest in companies that have a strategy for climate change. And because of this like ruthlessness to change, it has the power to change huge, huge industries and, and yeah. impact like wider people rather than kind of, you know, back to the very beginning of this conversation when you worked at the orphanage and you saw this, this poor like woman bringing in a child and like how, that was the last time they were going to see one another. Like you can change bits and pieces at a lower level in respect to like make that con- the conditions better, like build and support orphanages and such. But if you're able to get buy-in from the people that have global impact and you're able to educate those people about the opportunities to maximize, not just returns in, in respect to profit, like maximize impact. That's what it's that, about. Right. I think that's why, you know, the organizations that I admire the most, Transparency International, Business Human Rights Watch, Financial Innovation Lab, they're looking at the whole the system. They're looking at the incentives. They're looking at the market failures. They're looking at the perverse outcomes, uh, share action and others. And they're saying this system isn't working in this way. So you look at what's happened with pension funds over the last 10 years, through things like the Finance, Finance Innovation Lab, um, the impact that Donut, Donut Economics has had. Yep. Um, we mentioned before Kate's work there. That's where some really big, big change, I think, can happen when someone or a body changes the rules and dynamics. So it comes back again to that thing of the big, big changes that can happen positively positively and negatively through technology. Technology is also a platform to bring those voices together. So organisations like Share Action and Transparency International are stronger because of digital technology. But some of the levers and pulleys on larger, more hidden institutions and organizations, I think are incredibly important. It's, it's no longer profit. Like at the end of the day, like I'm not the only one that's professing this. There's there's loads of people that are are basically saying um, that the pandemic was a moment of great awakening, that it's, it's changed the very connotations of how the world is is structured and, and the demands for change that's driven from that so you know like I reference a paper by Brian Tan who was a researcher and he did a piece of research for corporate governance research back at, at Stanford Graduate Business School and he found that like 64% of global consumers believe that CEOs should take the lead on change rather than waiting for governments to impose it and as well as that we've got 50, 56% that said people that have, don't actually respect CEOs who remain silent on the bigger issues. So like we have to, con- we have to look at the fact that industry as a whole, like millennials, uh, uh, as they move within to middle and senior management roles, they are shaping the world and corporate policies and they're, they're demanding change and they're demanding a higher purpose. Yeah. And that's, that's what should galvanize us all because like, look, looking at yeah. where we go, we can then talk about like the delivery of value to everybody, the investment in employees, the dealing in a fair and ethical manner in respect to your value chain. There's the commitment to work with one another and open your boundaries that you traditionally had from your competitors to, to kind of lift each other up and support one another and embrace sustainable practices and look crucially, none of this like short termism nonsense. Look towards no, long term. Hit the nail on the head, I think, Peter, because you, you, if you think about, you know, the Great Resignation or the War on Talent that that you're referring to there for for large organisations. So if you're if you're one of the the biggest tech firms in the world right now, and there's plenty of them, and you're trying to attract the best talent, you're doing so because you're competing really hard for the best graduates or the highest caliber people, you know, whether it's in the games industry or, you know, software as a service, whatever it might be, those people that you're attracting hold certain values and certain principles that have been developed in a digital age around fairness and around inequality. You're not, you're going to struggle to attract the most talented people because they're going to choose you based on your purpose as an organization. So your values are going to have to reflect the talent that you want to attract. So that again, is one of those unintended consequences of 
you know, an organisation, no such thing as corporate philanthropy, remember, but having to change because it needs to, to remain viable and remain competitive. Exactly. And if you... Um, if you look at it, like you can't, in respect to value and in respect to mission, like you can't reverse into mission and value through marketing, which a lot of traditionally that was, that was a model marketing first, but now it's not like you have to activate your brand purpose. What are your core beliefs? What do you stand for? And engage with your community about uh, like the change action that you want to drive and galvanize people to be part of this movement for change. If you don't do it for real, you'll get found out. You can't. Yeah, exactly. I've always admired the kind of Scandinavian model of corporate social responsibility. I don't know why this is or what I've got. No, you know, there's no, there's no theory paper behind this, but it's kind of based on earn it. So if you take an action that's right, you know, right for the environment, right for society, you, you do it, you achieve it, and then you tell people what you've done. Whereas a very kind of UK or American model is to tell the world what you're going to do, yeah, yeah. and then and then and then forget about the pledge you made five years later when it comes to reporting back. You, you only need to flick through today's papers to look at the banks that signed net zero pledges yeah, yeah. at COP this year, this year, and have had inc- increased their investment into fossil fuel extraction and project finance. Oh, we see leaders uh, at COP that, like, you know, Modi extended his deadline by 10 years, which he'd previously agreed yeah. at previous COP events that it was yeah. going to be like 2050 and then he pushed it to 2060. Like, yeah. the, the crucial point, I guess, to anybody listening to this is that, you know, like, the change that we're talking about, it's, it's common knowledge and, and it's, it's evident that it's taken place and the seas of change are essentially already upon us. So it's up to businesses to react and be part, like proactively be part of the, the change that takes place because people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. Yeah. And like at the end of the day, listening to the, why the work that you do in respect to nominate and, and the, the, what motivates you as a person it's to help people, and that's that's the most that's that's the central message that people should take away from it. And if you want to help people, then I, I suggest like if if anybody's listening to this that want to get involved with the work that you're doing in respect to like the likes of a redistribution of, of laptops or even just some, creating some positive partnerships. Like now is the time. Now is the time to get on board this this journey that we're taking because like if you don't. Like, like always, like, like history has shown us in time and time again, those that are late to the party, <laughs> excuse the government pun, those, <laughs> those that are late to the party are left behind. And like what is, what is taking place now is revolutionary and, and we have a great opportunity to create an, an, a new purpose economy that's for the benefit of everybody. And, you know, that's, that's the most empowering thing I believe that people should take, that they have an opportunity to be galvanized and be part of this process rather than kind of stand back and kind of want to return to norm. Yeah. Norm, um, normal, normal's gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Looking at the future, like how far do you believe you can drive nominate? And, and, you know, we talked a lot during this podcast about the power of movements. Like what are the movements that you're looking to make within the coming years? I think help, help this space grow up. I'm part, I'm part of that. I feel like, you know, we're in the, kind of like playground, not to make it sound too trite, but we're in the really, really early years. We're in primary school when it comes to the digital issues that have come and kind of smashed into what we understood as social issues. I'm really excited about seeing that evolve, about deepening the research, deepening everybody's understanding of how to address them better. So increasing that evidence base so that, organizations you know like Bernardo's, Prince's Trust, NSPCC, Children's Society, Action for Children, I could go on. Those organizations have adapted to a digital age and are thriving to be able to make sure that they're representing the voices of young people, making sure that their services have um, adapted, have become more blended, so they're meeting the needs. Helping the Samaritans with developer, their instant messaging service or the, the online self-help tool that we've helped them develop, those sorts of things. See, seeing those organisations that we know have their mission baked into them at their heart, seeing them thrive in a digital age, as opposed to becoming 
yesterday's organisations that we talk about fondly. Do you remember when? I think that's really, really important. Getting our collective understanding of what does thriving mean for a young person, giving them agency and choice. What what society do young people want to grow up into as opposed to what's being impressed upon them? Putting young people in charge of their education, of their access to essential services, of their relationships online, making sure things go on their terms, resting a bit of power from the, the tech sector and putting it in the hands of young people so they're driving change. I think all those things from a conceptual position are really really important and i'm looking forward to seeing us adapt at that so that in five years time if we speak again i'm talking about this kind of digital social interface being quite more like a a teenager or a young adult because we've all got used to it and accustomed to it yeah i'm kind of excited as well to see the reaction we're in that age now where young people have grown up in a really emergent digital space. So all the harms and all the challenges and all the disenfranchisement and all the inequality is kind of happening upon us in real time. And like with everything, you get a reaction to that. So I'm kind of looking forward to seeing the next generation come through and how they've adapted and adjusted and taken back a bit of control of this kind of uh, virtual and real world and how it's all augmented together. Will the next generation coming through be completely comfortable with um, digital roles owning their own safety online their own digital resilience controlling their own conversations will they be a lot more comfortable in the metaverse than we ever will be (laughs) so making services work for young people as well so putting young people first making sure everyone has access to a device to connectivity but the services that they need you know, whether that's mental health and well-being services, access to a job, a good job. To give you one example there at the moment, most young people will look for jobs on a mobile phone. Most job applications that are online aren't mobile optimised. So you've got really, really, really frustratingly kind of daft disconnects. You've got a whole world of young people on the one hand looking for work from a mobile device and a a whole world of work sat there that can only be easily accessed from a desktop computer. And you want to go, guys, they're not looking for jobs on laptops. They haven't got laptops. So loads, you know, there's 80,000 young people in the care system. They don't have a laptop when they leave the care system. If you want them to apply for a job, make it mobile friendly. It's not rocket science, but it's only it's only not rocket science if you're having conversations with young people and understanding exactly where they're coming from. So we've got to get back to listening again. Yeah, I think it's listening's key, isn't it? It's it's about engaging with your audience and in respect to the challenges that we've we've described during this episode, like these challenges are opportunities for growth and development and there's this huge scope there. But you know, like it starts like like a lot of things. Like you've got to start small to grow big. And there's there's huge scope in respect to the work you're doing. If if so if we have people listening to this podcast that want to get involved, like by all means take a look at your website, like reach out to us via this podcast or however you want to kind of reach out and engage but please do because you know there's this huge opportunity here for creating some real higher purpose and and driving um real impactful change and like that's that's where we need to go so no thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure peter and you thank you so much for having me thank you for listening to the purpose made podcast Don't forget to subscribe to Purpose Made wherever you normally get your podcasts to hear the latest news and views. You can also find and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter or contact Peter directly to connect, inquire about Purpose Made or request to be featured on the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back soon for another episode.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.